The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. The word of God speaks to us. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth, on earth could bleach. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out from the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked them, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and then be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they had whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. This is God's word to us. All right, thank you, Katie. Good morning. If, uh, I haven't met you. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here at Frontline. We're going to pray together, me for you. I invite you to pray for me, and we'll continue in Mark. So let's take a moment to, to go to the Lord in prayer. Based on how Bridget has already led us in prayer this morning, it's just uh, so fitting and right that we come and thank you, Father, that we get to be with each other, and we get to hold in your hands our word and read it with our own eyes. <laughs> and so we, we don't rush past the gift that we have just to be with one another and to be with you in, in a way that's free and safe. And so we pray that we would be present, and we ask your help to do that that we all carried cares in this morning and, and we follow the call of the Apostle Peter to, in humility, cast those at your feet because we know that you care for us and that we would be able to listen to everything you have to say. And I, I pray in a real way, you help me just kind of point to you in a way where I get out of the way and we see the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. We pray, Jesus, this in your name, God's people said. Amen. Amen. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't really matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. I'm not concerned with that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountaintop. Those are some of the words that Dr. Martin Luther King said 1968, April 3rd, it was his last public address, his last speech. Um, the very next day, April 4th, he would be murdered, he'd be assassinated. I, I was reminded of these words this week. They came to mind, they came to heart, because, um, you know, Katie just read for us a, a significant mountaintop experience. And I don't know if y'all are like me, but me, when I think of a mountaintop experience, or even just that phrase, it feels like kind of like a religious cliche, like I think of like a bad men's retreat. Like, we're going to go have a mountaintop experience. It just seems kind of like connived and like, you know, just like we're trying really hard uh, to grasp something. Uh, 
But I, I think like deeply, truly, Dr. King here captures the heart and the meaning of a mountaintop experience with God. It means we've seen something true of God. We've, something we've behold, something's been planted in our heart and it's changed us and it's changed us in such a way that even if we're facing, come what may, trials and suffering and hardships, that we know something true of God that has revealed to us something that's true about us in God that encourages us, gives us bravery to face what may come. So even on the cusp of digging into this together, I just invite you to do the work of being present and asking the Spirit as we look at this story, the transfiguration, this mountaintop experience, that that you would be asking God, hey, what is true about you that speaks to where I am today? Things that I might be suffering so that in my own way I can say, I'm not concerned with that now. I just want to do God's will because he's allowed me to go up to the mountaintop. You know, it's interesting even if you look at the the whole of Scripture that it can be viewed as a mountain range. There's like this golden thread, this base note that runs through the redemptive story of God and his people where there are these mountaintop experiences. And it starts in in Genesis, even with Noah and Mount Ararat, where he is just experiencing the, the faithfulness of God, or more powerfully, even Abraham, right? He goes to Mount Moriah and he experiences the faithfulness, the provision of God. Moses in Exodus and Mount Sinai, he, he gets a glimpse and encounters the holiness of God. Elijah later on in Mount Horeb, he experiences just the kindness and compassion of God. And today as Katie read, we come to this really significant mountaintop experience right at the heart of the book of Mark. Mark in a real way has been leading up to this moment as we've been looking at the question, who is Jesus and what has he come to do? The answer in a real way collide here in Mark chapter 9. And what's interesting, at least if you're like me, uh, I've been going to church for 39 years. And I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon on the transfiguration. I probably have, and maybe I wasn't paying attention, and I just forgot. But I don't remember this being something that uh, many books have been written about or, or much time has been spent upon. And I don't, I don't know the reason why. Maybe just because it's so mysterious and and, and strange, but um, just to, to keep with the illustration, it really feels like an unclimbed, unexplored mountain, and there's beauty there for us. So I want us to climb the mountain together, see what's true about God that the story of the transfiguration of Jesus reveals and, and what that means for us. So the question we're going to be asking as we go through this is, what does the transfiguration tell us? What's the transfiguration tell us? Just to begin, I want to set the stage and just start at the beginning. Mark 9, verse 1, as Katie already read. And he said to them, Jesus speaking to his disciples in the crowd, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So just quick review. There's been real intense conversation leading up to the statement that Jesus has made. Peter has, with the help of of God, who has revealed it to him, confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the chosen one, the Savior of the world. And and this is just an amazing moment 
of revelation in the lives of the disciples. Jesus has patiently been leading them to this place, but then he brings just new levels of revelation when he says, hey, I am a king, I am a savior, but I'm a better, sweeter savior, a more powerful savior than you can ever imagine. I'm not coming just to restore some earthly kingdom of Israel. I'm coming to establish an eternal kingdom that will never end, and I'm gonna do that in a, in a way that seems like paradox, I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going, to, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die. And this is hard truth for these men who love Jesus deeply to hear. And he goes on to say, hey, and not only will my ministry be marked by self-denial and sacrifice, but to follow me means you're going to live a life of self-denial and sacrifice. And in the moment of sharing these true and glorious yet heavy things with his disciples and his followers. Jesus says, then, truly I say to you that there are some standing here who won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And we might hear that and think, well, maybe Jesus is talking about his second coming, which you know, makes sense on the surface, yet what, what he's saying is, look, some people here are going to see this, and this happened 2,000 years ago, and we're still in faith expecting and hoping and praying that Christ is going to come again. He will come again. So that's, that's not it. It's not the second coming. And some people think he's talking about the resurrection, and, and that's a good answer, and yet I think the answer is actually obvious. He's talking about what's about to happen that Katie just read. Mark gives us a clue in verse two because he says, after six days. So he's tying in that phrase what Jesus just promised to the reality. Hey, you're going to see some of you here going to see the kingdom of God come in power. And then after six days, what happens? Peter and James and John are led up to this mountaintop experience. See, we get insight further as to the fact that the promise of Jesus is this transfiguration from Peter himself when before his martyrdom, he's writing a letter to the early church. In 2 Peter, he writes this letter and he's speaking of his faith in Jesus and the hope he has in Christ. And he says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And listen to verse 18, Peter writes, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's writing to the early church, hey, I experienced, I saw, and I heard with my own voice the, voice the voice of the Father and the glory of Jesus, and he refers to the transfiguration. So the story, the story that we're going to look at is the story of the kingdom of God coming in power. You get a glimpse of glory. And so let's see what it has to tell us. The transfiguration tells us about, first, the affection of Jesus. The affection of Jesus. There's kindness and compassion and care that's happening in this moment. Look, verse two. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So these three men, Peter, James, and John, different times throughout the gospel, we see Jesus take care to draw these three especially close to Jesus. 
And in this moment, he begins by taking them up to the higher elevations of a mountain. And scholars believe this is Mount Hermon. And the story is also found in Matthew 17, a parallel account, and in Luke chapter 9. And Luke chapter 9 tells us that Jesus is bringing them up to this mountaintop specifically for a time of prayer. And this mountain is 9,000 feet above sea level. And so it was the mountain, we have a picture of it, is the mountain in Israel. So just imagine the experience. Just use your redemptive imagination to pretend that, that you just glimpse in your own heart what it would be like to be on this camping trip with Jesus. You're along for a climb. You've reached the top of, of this mountain. And now the sun is beginning to set because you've been climbing all day. 9,000 feet is no joke. And the sun's beginning to set. And just imagine the beauty. You've got like deep, rich purples and blues and, and oranges that are painting the sky. And you're at elevation, right? There's maybe some snow around. You're so high up. And, and it's beginning to get chilly as the sun sets. And so perhaps with Jesus, you gather some firewood to keep you warm over the night. And eventually, as the sun sets, there's a beautiful night sky with stars and the moon shining. It's a beautiful scene. And above all else, you're with Jesus Christ. What a gift, camping with God. And the question then is, why? Why does Jesus take these three and why does he take them to this place, this mountaintop? Why this special time? And I believe the answer is, is this. The answer is encouragement. Kindness, compassion, affection he has for these men. Remember, six days before, they had heard this hard truth. They're learning that Jesus is going to be rejected and suffer and die. And the road that they're going to be called to walk in their mission and their ministry is, is going to be one of sacrifice and self-denial. Jesus is saying there's going to be a crown. He always is going to talk about his, his resurrection. But he's saying before the crown, there's going to be a cross. And this is totally out of sync with the expectations of these guys. And they're struggling to understand. And they must have felt confused and sad and burdened and heavy. And in the midst of them feeling that way, Jesus is aware. And so he's bringing them up to this high place to lift their heads higher than the promise of momentary suffering. To look ahead to the promise of glory. So they're under the stars with Jesus. They're on top of the world with Jesus. What a gift, but they haven't really even seen anything yet because they're about to be flooded with wonder in ways they could never imagine. To encourage them, to show them kindness and love, to show his affection for these men, he shows them too just his awesome power. The transfiguration tells us about the awesomeness of Jesus. And if you're like me, that is like the most overused word in my vocabulary. Like tacos are awesome. And that was an awesome win last night for OU, which it was. And all these things are true, but like very rarely do we apply that word in a sense where it, we give that word justice, right? It's like we overuse awesome and all those things are awesome. This truly is awesome. Awesome, what's happening in this story. 
And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Again, Luke tells us that the purpose they go up on this mountain is to pray, and, and, and Luke and Matthew also tell us that evidently the disciples were, were prone to sleep when it was time to pray, and who can blame them, right? Like, they just hiked 9,000 feet, they're at elevation, the air is thin, right? It's, it's a beautiful night, and so inevitably you would be tired, and inevitably you might drift off, but eventually they wake up, and I just <laughs> want again, just imagine what that might have been like, like Peter, James, John, they're, they're sleeping, they're leaning maybe up against a tree, and as their eyes are closed, through their lids, they, they perceive not darkness, but the warmth of light. They must have thought, gosh, that night went by quickly, it's already morning. And they open their eyes to their astonishment, and they don't see a risen sun, S-U-N, but they see the glory of God's son and he's shining. He's outshining every star in the sky. (laughs) And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Let's just like recognize here that that sometimes language is limited. I just can imagine Peter telling the story to young John Mark and like, just not quite having the words to describe how extraordinary it was. And and John Mark here writing down Peter's account, just not quite having the language to convey to us how glorious and wonderful this was. I don't, I've never been to the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or like Maui, right? Or, or, or uh, like Yellowstone, these places that are extraordinary. Many of you, many of you have been there and, and when you come back and someone that hasn't been there will often ask like, what is it like, right? And you just, there's nothing to say. You just have to say, you, you just have to go. To see that wonder, I don't have the language and the words to convey how glorious it is. You just had to be there. You just have to go. And yet, in this wonder, in this moment, like Jesus is outshining any wonder of the world. His clothing is brilliant white. I wore this t-shirt on purpose today. I love white t-shirts. I think it's rooted in my love for the movie, The Outsiders. Um, But... Uh, it's dangerous wearing a white t-shirt, right? I was out to breakfast with Ryan a couple of a weeks ago and he was taking a swig of coffee and then JJ said some inside joke between them. I didn't know why it was funny, but it was so funny to Ryan that he couldn't keep that coffee in. He just had to spit it out and I was sitting across from him. So it was just, you know, just right. 7.15, I'm like, man, I, I'm worried about me and now I gotta worry about you, right? Just getting my... My wife, it's dangerous to wear white wipes. It doesn't work out well. I can't take communion without ruining, you know, a shirt that I'm wearing. And, and it was like two, you know, thousand, 2,000 years ago, John Mark is saying, look, there are people whose job it is to get our, your whites white. And today, right, like tide, thank God for it. And, and what's being said here is there is nobody, a tide can't hold like anything towards how white these whites were. This is miraculous, brilliant white. Matthew says his face shone like the sun. His clothes became light. Luke says his clothing was like lightning. What's up with all this? Psalm 104 says, 
Lord my God, you are very great and you are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as a garment. See, what's happening here is just the divinity of Jesus is being unveiled in an unmistakable way as a gift for these three men. They're seeing the awesome divinity of Jesus. I thought of a few moments this week when I was just imagining what Jesus' view was here. There's this moment that I love that I've referred to before, like Katie and Austin, I got to, who, who read scripture today, I got to officiate their wedding, right? And there's this beautiful moment where the bride comes down the aisle and her beauty and her wonder. And everybody looks at the bride as we should, but there's always a moment where I take a, a beat to look at the face of the groom because that has wonder in and of itself because her, her beauty, his bride's beauty is reflecting in his face and you just see in his eyes just this something that's unique in that moment. Or on the 4th of July when we're with our children and they're looking up at and seeing these explosions in the sky and their beauty and their wonder. That is a show, right? It's amazing. And yet there's something beautiful about looking at the faces of our children who are lit up by those explosions in the sky. And you see just that mix of like, depending on their age, even a little bit of fear and wonder and and just majesty of this is incredible. There's nothing like this, right? And I just imagine Jesus viewing his disciples' faces, the face of his friends, and seeing his glory reflected in them in their fear and in their wonder taking that in. I imagine he loved that sight. What a gift to them. John Mark describes this moment as Jesus being transfigured. That's a word that we only use to describe this moment, at least theologically. It's the same word for metamorphosis, and so we might think like fifth grade science, butterfly to a caterpillar, right? And that's not really the best way to consider it because Jesus isn't transforming here from one thing to something else. There's no change. There's an unveiling. There's a breaking through. I keep on thinking of Christmas songs. I told you guys last week, I was like super excited about Christmas this year. So I'm already like thinking about Christmas songs. And what I love about Christmas songs is they're so uniquely rich theologically. Hark the herald angels sing, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. See, when God entered into human history, he didn't come in all of his glory blazing like light and all his power, but he came in a, in a way humble and his glory was hidden as a human baby, fully God and fully human. And at this mountaintop, something that is real, Jesus isn't any less man in this moment. He stands there as a man, but his, as his humanity is reality, what is shown miraculously, is his divinity in a powerful way for these men to see. His nature did not change. He had always been the son of God. He's not becoming anything in this moment again. But he is revealing to these men something true about who he is. Let's keep on because it gets even more intense. Three, let's look at the achievement of Jesus. The transfiguration tells us something beautiful about what Jesus accomplishes. Verse four, 
And there appeared with them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. All right, what, what's happening? All right? How they knew, how these disciples knew that it was Elijah and Moses, we don't know. Like, perhaps Jesus introduced them. Like, hey, these are guys I've known for a long time. Let me introduce you to my friend Moses, my friend Elijah. Maybe that these guys just heard them conversing and referring to one another by name. Maybe God the Spirit just gave them that revelation in their hearts. I think a, a better question isn't how did they know, but why these two men? Like, why not Abraham and Isaiah Why not King David and Queen Esther? Like, why Moses and Elijah? Well, commentators have a lot of interesting things to say. They'll bring up the fact that Moses and Elijah themselves had some really powerful, glorious mountaintop experiences with the Lord in Exodus chapter 34 and in in, in, uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. They'll also bring up the fact that these men had, like, let's put it this way, interesting departures from earth. Like, it's, it's not a story we talk about much, but I think it's Exodus chapter 34, or no, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 34, where Moses dies, and Scripture tells us that God himself takes the body of Moses and buries it in secret, essentially has a private funeral. It's another sermon for another time. Um, <laughs> but also, Isaiah, uh, excuse me, Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2 Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2 does one of the few people in scripture that does not die, we're told, but he just experiences like a, I don't, like a, a, an Uber from heaven, maybe. I don't know how to describe it. It's a chariot of fire that just comes down and just takes him up to glory, and he doesn't even taste death. But why these two men, why are they here? I, I think it comes down to this. See, Moses, who was Moses? Moses was a man who delivered God's people, was used as an instrument by God to be a deliverer of God's people who'd experienced just abject, horrible slavery for over 400 years. And he didn't just deliver them from slavery, but he delivered to them God's law. I'm going to take you out of a living hell of slavery and I'm going to lead you into freedom and I'm actually going to give you the ways in which God calls you to live in holiness, how you were meant to live with God. He was an instrument of salvation for God's people. What about Elijah? We, we tend to know a little bit less about Elijah, maybe because like a DreamWorks animated movie wasn't made about him, maybe because there's just not as much scripture like as far as quantity about Elijah, but he's super significant as far as a figure of God's redemptive history. Elijah, we see in 1 Kings, he comes as a prophet uniquely called to restore something that had been lost. When he comes in power to preach to God's people, they're they're in deep sin, they're in deep darkness, they're being ruled by wicked kings, they're being oppressed and they're suffering, and he calls people back to God in a really unique, powerful way. And he, he, it, he just displays God's power in unique and powerful ways. First King chapter 17, Elijah is the first person in scripture to raise somebody from the dead. On multiple occasions, he calls down fire from heaven against the enemies of God. I think it comes down to this. Why Moses? Why Elijah? Moses establishes God's people in a real way. And and, uh, Elijah restores God's people in a real way. And together, uniquely, they they kind of summarize in their examples of, of God's faithfulness to his people. 
And more than that, though, when you look at their ministry, they're this beautiful type and shadow of ultimately what Jesus will accomplish, his achievement. They're penultimate in their role, penultimate deliver, penultimate prophet, right? And Jesus is ultimate. They, they, they are so extraordinary in their ministry, and yet they're just giving us a glimpse of what Jesus is going to fully do. Moses was a great deliverer who pointed us to Jesus, the greatest deliverer. Through Moses, we get the law, but in Jesus, he perfectly fulfills the law and gives us his righteousness. Elijah was a great prophet that spoke on behalf of God. Jesus is God in the flesh speaking. Elijah called down fire from heaven against the names of God, and Jesus was the fire from heaven who came to vanquish sin and Satan and death. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5, 17. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That Jesus is the completion of what these men began. And if you're like me, you're hearing about these conversations, you're like, man, I wish I knew what they were talking about. Well, thank you, historian Dr. Luke, because he asked some questions, I imagine, from the Apostle John and, and said, hey, what, what was, did you get a glimpse of the conversation? Jesus is hanging out with Moses and Elijah. What were they talking about? Well, in his parallel account, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 9, verse 30, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and listen, and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. That word departure, in the Greek, it's exodus, right? So it appears four other times in the New Testament. It appears in Hebrews. It says, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, right? So that's referring to God leading his people out of slavery into freedom. But then the other three times it's mentioned, 2 Peter, Acts 20, and 2 Timothy, that's Peter and Paul talking about their death, their departure. For example, 2 Peter chapter uh, 1, verse 15, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And so this word exodus is used in the New Testament to describe leading into freedom out of slavery and dying. And it's like, well, which one are they talking about up on this mountaintop? They're talking about both. Jesus is with Moses and Elijah, and they're talking about what Jesus is going to do on the cross. They're having a conversation about Jesus laying his life down and what that will accomplish. Moses' exodus was a physical freedom, and they're saying, look, a greater exodus is going to be accomplished as the Son of God lays down his life. Freedom for all eternity with God. And the tense indicates that this was an extended and long conversation and and what a conversation it must have been. But the bottom line is this is proof of Peter's confession. Here is the Christ in his glory. Jesus, the son of God. What a sight, right? Moses, who's been dead for 1,500 years talking to Jesus. Elijah, who's been gone for 900 years talking to Jesus. Like if there ever was a time to be quiet, it's this moment, right? If you were there, you would just, I've got two ears, one mouth. I'm going to listen. And yet Peter being Peter, who I love so much, is like, hold my beer. 
I got something to say, guys. You can just imagine John and James being like, no, don't say anything. And Peter's just like, I need to chime in, right? I've got something to add to this conversation, right? That brings us to our fourth point, the authority of Jesus. The transfiguration tells us about the authority of Jesus, verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified, right? Some of us, some of us when we're scared, we're quiet. Others, we just start talking, right? And that's okay. And uh, Peter just started talking. And so some commentators actually, Peter's just not merely babbling. He actually is probably saying something that was rooted in, in his understanding of, of God in the Old Testament. And he's afraid. And it's like, maybe we need a tent, a tabernacle to contain all this awesomeness because I'm kind of freaked out, right? But there's something that I think applies to us that that we can see here. And it's this, that I think at the heart of what, what Peter might be feeling is, hey, this is awesome and this is a moment. It's an understatement, right? And we should camp out here. This is it. This is great. We got the whole gang. We got Jesus. We got Moses. We have Elijah. Let's, let's pitch some tents. We'll start a retreat center. And like, we don't need to, none of this, like this sacrifice and this cross stuff. Like, no, we just need to, to set up camp here. And this is as good as it gets, right? But the transfiguration wasn't about the moment. It was about the Messiah. It was about conveying and revealing to these men who Jesus truly is. Is. Remember, Jesus wants to encourage them in the midst of what lies ahead and what they're called to. See, I think this is the danger for me, and I suspect it's a danger for each and every one of us, is to feel something that Peter was feeling here. That we can miss out on mission and even miss out on the Messiah because we're too focused on a moment. I mean, for example, like maybe when you were younger, you were part of an amazing church and God really met you there and you grew in beautiful ways or you were a part of an extraordinary and and glorious and amazing small group and it was so sweet. It It was a moment where God undeniably moved in power and did rich things, or you had a, a, a relationship where you were discipled by a person, and, and it was so formative for you, or you had a friendship with somebody in, in ministry, and, or, and it was just so sweet, and yet what happens now in our lives is that that is the lens by which we view everything, and we're really challenged to be present with what God is doing now because we're so hung up in living in the past of what God once did, and we're missing out on the beauty of Jesus. Thank God for how he's moved in our lives in the past in in rich and beautiful ways, but that wasn't about the moment. It was about him. And perhaps, just perhaps, those moments were so formative and sweet in our lives that they were to help us as a mountaintop experience be ready for the mission that God is calling us to live out in this moment. So as Peter's talking, he doesn't really even know what he's saying because he's, he's freaking out, as we all would be. And so he needs some help grasping what this moment's about, and, and boy, does he sure get it. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but only Jesus. They had to have, in this moment, if they had the wherewithal, or afterwards, just processing and, and thinking back, just had to have grasped and, and, and or tried to grasp and, and thought and considered, what, what was that all about, Right? That was so amazing. What did that mean? And the Father is is just going to make it really clear to them, Peter, James, and John. What is the transfiguration about? What's about the authority of Jesus? The Father speaks to his identity. This is my beloved son. And then the Father speaks to his authority. Three words that he wants these three men to hear. Listen to him. The law, Moses, the prophets, Elijah, they were partial expressions of what God wanted to say, but here stands the final and the best word of God, Jesus, the word of God in the flesh. And the message is simple from the Father. Listen to him. The author of Hebrews put it this way at the beginning of his book. He said, long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You know, we pick on Peter, right? Probably because we're reminded so much of us in him. And yet, for as much as he said, he said some really glorious things, right? There's this moment in the Gospel of John, John chapter 6, where Jesus says some hard things to a big crowd and they all leave him. They, they abandon him. They take, they take their ball, they go home. And Jesus, being obviously discouraged, he looks at his friends, his disciples, and he says, are you guys going to leave me too? And Peter, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You know, I was talking to my friend Andrew Burkhart this week. He's a pastor at Frontline South, and, and he shared with me some fascinating information. He told me about a guy named Buckminster Fuller, who's this um, systems theorist. And he, he estimates that just 2,000 years ago in the first century, that the knowledge in the world, for the information, the knowledge in the world to double, the amount of content info in the world to double in the first century, it would take about 1,500 years. Yet, by the year 1900, it would take only about 100 years for the amount of information, the content of the world to double. Yet, today, according to Google strategists, about every 12 hours... Before the day is over, the amount of content and information in the world will double. That's hard to even wrap our minds around, right? So this is what I'm getting at, right? We each are swimming and inundated and and flooded from every angle with information and content and voices just claiming to, to speak to truth and reality and lead us and light our way. 
Voices about our identity and money, our sexuality, what the good life and pleasure is. Voices that speak to us about how we're to live out marriage or singleness. And there are blogs and books and podcasts and social media and and friends and professors and talking heads. And they all are telling us to listen. This is my primary pastoral concern. When I'm thinking about my own life and I'm thinking about our congregation, the thing that keeps me up at night that I'm worried about is you all just being inundated with those voices and how hard it is to discern and suss out what's truth and what's lie. And yet the beauty of the transfiguration, if you take away one thing, may we take away the the command and the charge of the heavenly father who in this moment says, this is my son, What does the transfiguration mean? Listen to him. Why are we going to spend 44 weeks studying the book of Mark? To listen to him. Why do we sing these songs? Because we're reminding our hearts to listen to him. Why do we gather in gospel community? It's not just for the sake of community. Community is about together listening to him. They open their eyes and and they see verse 8. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but only Jesus. See, that's so fitting. That's not just a a throwaway description of what actually happened. It did actually happen, but there's a message, right? Moses is gone, Elijah is gone, and Jesus is there, bringing only what he can, the author of life, light, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So, as we wrap up, let's just look at the rest of the scripture quickly. How does the story end? Verse nine. They were coming down the mountain and Jesus, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And then they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So they're making their way down the mountain and the climb down is always easier than the climb up and so they're probably doing more talking because they have more questions. And they have questions that they don't really have the courage to ask. Just, we don't get this resurrection, Jesus explained, but they, they don't ask that question about the future, but they do ask some questions about the past. And it's a good question. They've read the book of Malachi. They, they know that there's a prophecy that says, hey, before the day of the Lord, which means before the Lord comes, and, and as, as one fictional book puts it, everything sad comes untrue. Before everything broken is fixed. Before God appears to make everything all right, to bring us back to the garden, a place of peace and purpose and perfection. Before that comes, Malachi prophesied that Elijah would come. And so they're asking, hey, Elijah was just on that mountain. Elijah has come, right? And so all this talk, Jesus, about just 
you being rejected and you suffering and you dying, like it doesn't just sync up with us because Elijah's come. Everything must be all right. And Jesus explains, Elijah has come and they've done with him whatever they wanted just as it is written. Jesus is explaining that when Malachi said Elijah would come, he meant someone in the spirit of Elijah, a prophet with the heart and the call to call people back to God. And he's saying that that person is John the Baptist. This is how Matthew 17 puts it in verse 11. Again, a parallel account of this story. Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has come already and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. And listen to this, in the same way, the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. So Jesus is saying, John the Baptist has come. He's already come. He's suffered and he's gone. He's he's saying his road is going to be my road. His ministry was a forebearer of my ministry and guys, his death is also going to be a forerunner of my death because guys, I just gave you a glimpse of glory It was just a moment, but my heart isn't just to give you a glimpse of glory. My heart and my purpose and my mission, why I'm here, is to not just give you a taste of it. I want you to know it for all eternity. And so we were just on Mount Hermon, but now we're walking down because Jesus is saying, I'm making my way to another mount. I'm going to Mount Golgotha, and I'm going to have a mountaintop experience that isn't glorious. It's going to be hell on earth. I'm going to know pain and suffering and rejection of every kind and I'm going to go through that mountaintop experience so you don't just get a glimpse of glory but in me you can know glory forever and have eternal life. See, that's what the transfiguration is about. It just gives us a glimpse of the achievement of Jesus, what he's going to accomplish, his his work for us, the encouragement that we have today, the wonder that we can store up in our hearts, the reality that we're invited to stand on top of the world with Jesus and go to the mountaintop with him is that he went so low, even to death on a cross, so we can be lifted up and know his glory for all eternity when we receive him as Lord. That's what the transfiguration is giving us a glimpse of. Let's stand and pray.